If you're listening to this episode, you're listening to one of our first ever episodes. Yay, you. Uh, Depending on which episode you're listening to, you may notice that we're still working some things out like the music in episode one or the just general audio audio problems that we have all the time sorry yeah we want to leave these episodes up to show our progress so this disclaimer is to thank you for listening and hopefully you'll have patience with these things yes we definitely ironed it out in season two so more to come Welcome to our dogcast. I'm Sarah and I'm Laurel and this is What is Dog? Is it the question or the answer? Sarah, I have a lot of surprises for you today. Oh, what are they? (laughs) A big one is that I reached out to Northeast Animal Shelter for a potential partnership. Wait, you what? Uh, Yep, I did. And I want to get a partnership with them so that we feature one of their, and this was Totally your idea. I totally stole it. No, this is so great. I didn't execute it. (laughs) To feature... Well, I wanted to surprise you with it because I knew that you really wanted to do this. Yeah. And feature one of their adoptable dogs each week. Oh my gosh! That's so great. What did they say? So... They were excited initially. We haven't heard back on like an official partnership yet, but okay. they said they said there's no concerns with us like oh. mentioning their name. But hopefully we'll get something locked in soon. Oh my gosh, it's so exciting! Nice job, Laurel. It's <laughs> <so> great. <laughs> um, and when I was researching like different shelters to partner with, theirs stood out to me because of who they are and also mm-hmm. their mission. Um, they were established in 1976 and are one of New England's largest non-profit no-kill animal shelters. Yes, I love the no-kill shelters. Awesome. Me too. And since they're opening their doors, they've placed over 140,000 cats and dogs. Isn't that wow. incredible? That's incredible. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Wow. Good for them. I can't even believe that number. Um, and if you if you all hear a little bit of something, Charlie and Duke are having a day. They are having the best day of their lives <laughs> <Yeah>. today. <laughs> We took them outside um, to a park and to a pond, and they were just playing nonstop. So, yep. And now they're back in the kitchen with us and still playing. (laughs) They're the best of friends. Um, Anyways, Northeast Animal Shelter is not only a no-kill shelter, but they're committed to not only admitting and adopting out dogs, but also working on socializing while they're there. Good. And they work on different behavioral issues while the dogs are in their care. Like, they'll work with experts and things like that. Nice. So, and I don't know of any other, I mean, I'm sure shelters do, but I've never actually realized that they work on their behaviors while they're there, too. Right. I didn't think, I thought they pretty much just held the animals there and didn't do anything with them. So, that's awesome that they actually work with them I completely agree so today I went on to look at like which dogs that could be adopted and I decided to feature a dog named Sheila oh my gosh she's so cute for our listeners she looks like some kind of hound mix I'm guessing. Yeah. Okay, go so, ahead. You tell, tell us. Just <laughs> so the picture. <laughs> they say that she's a lab mix, but I can imagine that she's a lab hound mix. Mm-hmm. Um, she's not. The reason why I want to feature her is because she's not a puppy. Um, she's a, I'm a sucker for pups, but I also really, truly, my heart goes out for dogs who are a little bit older in shelters just because they have a little bit of a harder time. She's not old by any means. She's four years old, and she actually came in with five puppies. Oh, my god. So she had a litter. Oh, 
Um, and she's a female lab mix. And she says she's, like, an amazing mom. And from what I can tell, all of our puppies have been adopted out, but she's still there. No! Somebody please adopt her! Yeah. Oh, my gosh. She looks so sad in this picture, just, like, <laughs> waiting for home. And we'll definitely post a picture of her. Yes, absolutely. I hope somebody adopts her. She's, she's uh, so cute. It, I want to give homes to all the dogs. <laughs> Me too. Can we just have like a farm of like adoptable dogs? Yes, please. I think that's hoarding. <laughs> um, so if you're interested or know someone that might be, please contact Northeast Animal Shelter. They're in Salem, Massachusetts, and they're open seven days per week. And they got back to me. I only reached out to them this morning, so oh, don't wow. give me too much credit. Um, and they got back to me within, like, five minutes. Wow, that's great. Yeah. Also, I love Salem, so definitely worth the trip up there. Yeah. <laughs> if you're going to adopt a dog there, it's worth going. Yeah. Especially in October. Yeah. Have you been there in October? I My mom used to live out near there. Oh, gosh. And I went once when I was younger. It's a spooky experience. <laughs> it's so spooky, but also it's like a giant festival there in October. People get just dressed up and walk around like all month. <laughs> yeah, they seriously, they really celebrate Halloween. Yeah, they, they really do. <laughs> <laughs> so let's jump into our episode. So when you hear Puptrician, what do you think? Puptrician, I think about healthy food for dogs. I love that. That's a great answer. So it's basically a word that I've just made up. It's puppy oh. nutrition. Oh, good. So it embodies what we're trying to go for, which is good. Exactly. Yep. So this topic is basically uh, talking about dog nutrition. It's basically the reason why I wanted to do this entire podcast. Oh, cool. I yeah. am so passionate about dog nutrition, but I feel like I know such a small amount about it. Mm-hmm. No, I just don't know enough. So I imagine this will be a series of episodes with a bunch of facts and a bunch of experts. I'm literally going to do like Puptrician 1, Puptrician 2, Puptrician 3. Nice. Okay. <laughs> um, if you're a pet lover or a pet parent, there is nothing that's more important to you than making sure your pet is healthy and happy. But what in the actual world should you be feeding your pet? I don't know. And it's something I've really struggled with recently because for like Duke has the worst poops. Mm. They've been so sloppy. Um... And we have talked to the vet about it many times, and they've recommended many different foods, and we'll do a gradual switch, and, like, nothing. There's one thing we recently did that helped. What is it? Pumpkin. Okay. Yeah, I have heard of that. Yeah, so we started adding just a little, like, a tablespoon of pumpkin pumpkin puree to his breakfast only, Mm -hmm. and it seems to have really helped. Like, his poops are way more solid. And that's sort of, like, a binding ingredient? I guess. It's supposed to be easier on their digestive system, and it's really high in fiber, Mm -hmm. and so it just... Like, it doesn't irritate his stomach, I guess, is what's going on. That's amazing. And what do you... Do you remember the name of the food that you feed him now? Um, no. Right now, we're... (laughs) (laughs) I can never remember when I'm off. I can't remember. It's something that's prescribed from the vet, and I forget exactly what it's called. Is it Science Diet? No, that was the last one we were on, though. We were on Science Diet Sensitive Stomach for a while, Mm -hmm. Um, but that even didn't help. Yeah. I hate when that happens. Um, Peanut, he actually had, as you know, a lot of medical issues throughout his life. I used to call him my million-dollar puppy. (laughs) And because of all the vet visits and the surgeries over the years, and one of the biggest challenges was his food allergies. Food was, like, poisoned him. It took us so long to find food that his stomach could handle. Oh, my God. And once we did find that food, it seemed like he would start to build an intolerance over time. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Which it sounds like that's kind of of Duke. Yeah, it seems like Duke. So hopefully the pumpkin sticks. Did you ever find something that worked for a peanut? 
Yeah, so after a ton of research, we chose to go with Earthborn, which okay. is a type of food company that they do, like, limited ingredients. Okay, that's good. And I could control exactly what he was eating and rule out, like, any sort of allergens that were in there. So I was, like, really excited about finding that. <laughs> the dogs, by the way, are having a blast. They're yeah, not, you they're might. Not. <laughs> you're probably hearing it in the background. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they're having the best day ever. If you hear them growling, it's, like, happy playgirl. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so I was feeling really good about that decision, like having Earthborn, and when I adopted Charlie, he came to us, and he had, like, really runny poops, too. Right. And they were feeding him, like, a chicken-based diet, which is one of the hardest things on dogs' stomachs. Oh, okay. I didn't know that, actually. Uh, Chicken-based diets are bad. Yeah. Well, I mean, not bad for all dogs, but for dogs with food allergies, that's a tough one. Yeah, okay. Just because it's in a lot of food, so they build up an intolerance quickly. Right, right. Um, And when I first got him, they're like, no, he doesn't have any food allergies, but, like, his poops never saw them. I'm like, well, then I think he has food allergies. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I thought that I could just kind of use the same earthworm that I did before but then, do you remember that big report that came out that said that all limited ingredient foods cause heart disease? Did you ever hear that? No, I don't think I did. Tell me about it. Yeah, so um, there's a, a big study that came out that basically said, like, you should stop using, like, any, like, niche brands that have limited ingredient foods. Oh, okay. And I was like, oh my gosh, that debunked, like, I was feeling so good about, like, what I found out and what I really right, right. realized, researched, and then put into tests. And I was so bummed out. And it was a big study that, um, I don't have it with me today, but that will have to be a pediatrician two or three. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, I'm pretty sure it was done by, like, a big commercial brand. Mm-hmm. And so, like, that's another one of the reasons. I want to dig into, like, what are the actual results of this? Like, I want to put out a study and, like, find out, like, yeah. is heart disease really related to limiting ingredient diets? Yeah, I would really like to know. Did you see that thing? It was, what... It was a dog food company that a couple of years ago it turned out their ingredients that they were reporting weren't even the actual ingredients in the food. It was that blue... Blue buffalo. Blue buffalo. That was it. It's supposed to be, like, really good, um, like, real ingredients. And somebody did a, like, study and they analyzed what was actually in the food and it was a ton of fillers. Uh, and so there was a whole lawsuit and wow. stuff. So I'll have to find it, um, look it up for next nutrition one, but... I guess they've turned it around now, but I still don't buy their food because I'm still worried, like, if that they're lying about what's in there. Right. That's so unethical. I can't believe that they would do something like that. Yeah. Shame. Shame. <laughs> Shame on you. <laughs> so, since this is going to be a series of episodes, I thought the first one that we'd start at, like, the very beginning, mm-hmm. um, and we talk about the history of pet food. Like, where Ooh. does it start? <laughs> Time for a little history class. <laughs> this really is going to be, like, a serious you know history funny? class. <laughs> when I hear the word history, I kind of get bored and want to check it out. <laughs> Just the word. But the thing is, history is actually really interesting if it's told the right way. Like, yes. it's a story. Yeah. If it's just a bunch of names and dates, it's like snooze fest, though. So. It's so true. So we'll try to make this a story. <laughs> <laughs> we'll try to make this as interesting as possible. No pressure, Sarah. <laughs> um, so I looked at a few different articles to really understand, like, the history of, like, where dog food came from. Yeah. And I... and. This is what I actually think is going to make it interesting. I chose to focus on two feuding articles. Feuding. Feuding. Okay. (laughs) I chose to focus on the history of pet food, and that's from the Pet Food Institute. 
What's the Pet Food Institute? So when you hear that, it sounds really legitimate, right? Like there's an institution that's based off of pet food. Okay. So here's the thing. PFI is what they call it, Pet Food Institute. It's really interesting. They've been around since 1958, and they call themselves the voice of the pet food industry. They mention that they're dedicated to providing a science-based regulatory environment for their members, but what... You're, what you're hearing is that they're funded by these giant commercial dog food brands. Oh. So that's like what in my gut I'm so worried about with like all of these these fact-based yeah. things that are coming out. Like, are, can we trust it? I just don't right. know. Yeah, it's hard to trust if it's funded by a large corporation. Like, they have an agenda then. And that's what I, I didn't realize that when I was first starting reading and I was right. like, oh my gosh, I'm going to use everything that this Pet Food Institute has But then I found this other article by the Farmer's Dog, and they suggest that the Pet Food Institute may not be as legitimate as one would think. Right. Um, What's the Farmer's Dog? They're really interested in feeding more natural foods to dogs, so like more of like cooking your your meals for your dog and things like that, and giving them like real chicken and like real rice and things like that. Do we know if they have an agenda too? It's very, it's very possible. Okay. I have to check to see if they're selling anything because I do not know that. I'm starting to feel like the jo- dog food industry is really shady. Mm-hmm. I, this is why I wanted to start the podcast. We're going to get to the bottom of this. Okay. We have to. <laughs> um, so from the farmer's dog, I pulled from their article, which is the history of commercial pet food. A great American marketing story. Cool. <laughs> so um, the Pet Food Institute... This is where it starts out with, um, tells us that research suggests that dogs were domesticated about 16,000 years ago, and possibly were keeping company with humans for more than 30,000 years. Oh, they've been our friends for so long. So long. Oh. Um, By 2000 BCE, I don't even know what that is, so. (laughs) BCE? Before... So I I, I think they changed, it used to, BCE used to stand for before Christ, Mm -hmm. but... I think they changed it to BCE to stand for something else because that's really, you can't... It's religious. Right, it's religious and you need something secular, so mm. I'm going to look it up. Okay, that was BCE. <laughs> Before Common Era. Ah. Yeah, so, um, okay, this says, um, but Before Common Era... BCE and BC before Christ mean the same thing, which is previous to year 1 CE, which is common era. 2000 BCE, humans were given consideration in to, to feed their dogs. Um, there's a Roman poet and philosopher, Marcus Terentius Varro. No, I have to say the hard names. He wrote a manual on farming far, called Farm Topics, and it advised that providing dogs with meat and bones... And barley soaked in milk was the way to go. Meat, bones, and barley. Okay, what was this guy's name? Marcus Tarantula. Marcus Tarantula? <laughs> what? Marcus Tarantula? Tarantula. Varro. Okay, so Mr. Tarantula. Uh, Mr. Tarantula. Let's just call him Marcus. <laughs> Sounds good. But we're so, done talking about it. So we have this dude, Marcus. <laughs> He's in his farm, like, <laughs> he's like, dude, nobody knows how to feed their dog. I'm an expert on this. Yes. And I'm going to write a book and tell everybody what to do. I know. I have no idea how he backed that up. Or That's so fun. He was the first one to do it. He probably thought he was so cutting edge. Probably. He was like the apple. 
He was like us doing a podcast, (laughs) but he wrote a manual. (laughs) He wrote a manual. He's like, I'm the expert. I wonder how many dogs he had and like how long it took him to get his recipe together. Or he just like fed this like lonely dog that he had. Who knows? I just really want to know like who he was. Like, was he this like creepy man with like a big kennel and he was like, ah, yes, yes, you must feed the dogs (laughs) the the raw bones. I have no idea. (laughs) He was a Roman poet and philosopher, so he sounds like kind of legitimate. (laughs) We should find some of his poetry and see if it's about dogs. Yes. Yeah. Was he only focused on dogs? Or or, like, did he just have poetry and philosophy? Was he a well-rounded person? That's what I really want to know. Okay. We will have to do that. We need like a fact check for these ones or something. I know. Okay. So anyway, we can do it in a follow-up episode. Okay. So then we go to the 14th century where Gaston the third. Gaston. Wait, is it Gaston? Oh, it's probably Gaston. <laughs> <laughs> As you can tell, I'm not very worldly. <laughs> I, I never get the pronunciation names. <laughs> he was in. He's in southwestern France, and he's an avid hunter. And he wrote a book in which he described how his beloved greyhounds were to be cared for, and it included reference to what they're being fed, which was bran bread, some of the meat from the hunt. And if the dog was sick, they'd give them goat's milk, bean broth, and chopped meat or buttered eggs. Wow, that is so fancy compared to today. Like, I know. Oh but you God. said you, that you give eggs sometimes, and I used to give eggs sometimes, too, when they were sick. I do. I do um, give Duke raw egg, like, once a week. Yeah. But there's some health benefits and potential risks, like salmonella. There's a lot of conflicting literature out about whether or not that's a good thing for your dog. Mm. I think it's a good thing, so... Um, but I'm really interested in why this guy was hunting with greyhounds. Well, did, were they used to be hunting dogs? Yeah, I think that's what greyhounds oh, were used for a lot of I times because they're so fast. I get, yeah, I guess that makes sense. I think of, like, hound dogs for hunting. Yeah. Or, like, a retriever. I guess it's greyhound. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I just want to think greyhound, I think, like, it's racing. Yeah, it's true. Know, which I am against. Which was so terrible. But, yeah. Um... So then in common households during the Middle Ages and through the mid-19th centuries, there was little consideration being given to feeding dogs as the dog's diet was whatever the owners were eating, mm-hmm. um, whatever the owners could spare, such as knuckles of bone, which I don't even know means, cabbage, potatoes, onions, and crusts of bread. I thought onions are bad for dogs. Apparently they used to do it. Okay. And in the mid-1800s, a dog's or a cat site might have been more slightly buried in cities where it was common for people to purchase horse meat for their pets. No! As walking horses would die in the city streets. Oh, that's depressing. Yeah. I'm too glad we didn't live back then. Oh my gosh. We would have gone nuts, Sarah. I know. I think we probably would have, like, ran through the streets and our horses, like, going and, like, letting all the horses loose. We'd be horse bandits. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) With the Industrial Revolution and the rise of the middle class in the 19th century, families with disposable income began to keep domesticated dogs and cats as companion animals rather than just as working animals. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You said that all. You just went through a lot of history there. During the Industrial Revolution in when? The, and the rise of the middle class in the 19th century. Oh, there's so much literature about that era. Industrial Revolution, as I remember from the history class that I half-assed, mm-hmm. was when, like, all the factories started booming in America, and that's when, like, all the... Basically, like, that was your, your everyday man. Like, that was their job. I was working in a factory... 
you know, um, and there's a lot of like, that's when like, I think the auto industry started becoming a big thing. And, you know, that was like everybody working factories. <laughs> yeah, I think they just started having like more of that disposable income and they could spend a little bit more money on like food for their animals. Right, yeah. So this businessman, his name is James Spratt. He decided to get some money off of this whole thing. So he introduced the first commercially prepared pet food in England in approximately 1860. After seeing dogs like being fed leftover biscuits from a ship, Spratt formulated the first dog biscuit, which is a mix of wheat meals, vegetables, beetroot, and beef blood. Spratt's business ventures were a success, meeting a new market demand and selling to English country gentlemen for sporting dogs. Oh, wow. <laughs> so fancy with their dog biscuits. <laughs> but here's where the two articles are starting to feud. <laughs> so the farmer's dog tells that same story that the Pet Institute did, but they tell it a little bit differently. They do? Yes. What? <laughs> do tell. They mention that Spratt remained notoriously tight-lipped about his biscuits' specific meat stores throughout his lifetime. Oh, uh-oh. The biscuits were extremely expensive, with one 50-pound bag costing the equivalent of an entire day's work for a skilled craftsman. Okay, but 50 pounds is a lot of biscuits. It's, it's true. That's a lot of dog... Well, no, so- this is dog... Oh, you're right. Like, he was saying that those biscuits were, like, the dog food, basically. So, okay, that's pretty That's pretty much the same as today. Because if you think if you made, like, $150 after taxes in a day's work, and you bought 50 pounds of dog food, like, I don't know, how much do you spend on 50 pounds of dog food? Maybe, like, $80 if it's, like, good dog food? Well, I buy Charlie, I think it's a 50-pound bag, and it's $35. Oh, okay. Well... Yeah, then I guess the day's wages is well. But I also go through Chewy.com, which gives me, like, a major discount. Okay. Shout out to Chewy. Yeah, I love Chewy. <laughs> Chewy's so wonderful. Yeah. Um, okay. I'm jumping around in time. <laughs> so, Spratt wisely targeted English gentlemen who could afford the higher price point. Right. That makes sense. So, he's, like, a marketing king, basically, yeah. in that time. Of course. Um, despite the high cost and the lack of transparency about his meat source, Spratt billed the biscuits as dog's primary food source. Oh, okay. So it was like their, their food. It wasn't a treat. I was thinking it was a treat. I think it probably started off as a treat, but then he may have repackaged it okay. or something along those lines, and then it became their primary food source. Gotcha. Okay. After launching the company's American operations in the 1870s, Spratt employed an aggressive advertising strategy. He started targeting health-conscious pet owners and dog show participants and bought the full front co- cover of the first American Kennel Club journal in January of 1889. Wow, what an industrious <laughs> entrepreneur. <laughs> in promoting his first product, he called upon a few old friends for testimonials, touting the benefits of his dog cakes, is what he's calling it. He biscuits, cakes, cakes oh food. Oh my gosh. Well, you know, that sounds yummy than like lumps. <laughs> yeah, it's so true. Lumps would be so bad for anybody. Here, have a lump. <laughs> That sounds disgusting. <laughs> hey, are you having fun? Duke just came up to me. He has the biggest smile on his face. He loves playing with his friend Charlie. I oh, know. Hi, Charlie. They've been so. Hi, Duke. It's oh, Duke's getting to like you. <laughs> That's so. Oh my gosh, Charlie, you're not careful. So Duke is very aloof. So it's really special when he warms up to people. Like, I know, Charlie. It's not. <laughs> it's a little much. Charlie, no. <laughs> 
Um, the American public was basically hooked and quickly traded the table scraps that they had been feeding for their dogs for his biscuits. Oh my gosh, they just go back and forth. Dog cakes, biscuits, I don't know what it was called. Yeah, they, they probably used both. Yeah. Then. And maybe there were two different options, you know, do you want the biscuit or do you want the cake? Maybe. I would want the cake. <laughs> I like the biscuits. Yeah. Biscuit sounds really cute. It does. Um, Spratt also notably pioneered the concept of animal life stages with appropriate foods for each individual stage. Does that sound familiar to you? Yes, it does. (laughs) Oh my gosh, because you've got puppy food, regular dog food, and senior food. I even do this for my horses. Like, they're on a senior diet. (laughs) Right. And it's interesting that the article um, from the farmer's dog calls that out because it's almost like they're suggesting that that's not necessary and that's all just marketing. Yeah. So we're going to have to dig into that further. I'm not sure yet. I, you know, I want to point out something else about the marketing. Today's world, they market pet food commercials. They try to make the food look appealing to humans. Mm. They do this on the bags where you, the food looks super yummy. Um, it, like, it doesn't look like dog food. It shows, like, fresh carrots and, like, meat and stuff, right? And, like, that's not what the food actually looks like. And same on dog food commercials. And then the flavors are, again, targeted towards humans. It'll be, like, turkey and gravy or yeah. something. And, like, that's not what the food actually tastes like they're just trying to make it sound appealing to them so the biscuits and cake is again very early stages of them trying to make something that sounds appealing to humans when it's not it was actually what like beef blood and beets and yeah yeah so i mean as a marketing professional myself i am constantly trying to figure out what angle will most um affect the outcome that i'm trying to get Mm -hmm. so just being a marketer, I'm constantly very suspicious of everyone's what the what companies are trying to actually do and what they're actually offering. Yeah, it does sure. make me nervous because I just know how much things can be spun. Exactly, it's super shady, really. I know, but hopefully the company has the moral value or moral compass to. Because I also I'll make sure in my marketing, like I don't do anything that that would be shady. So yeah. like, hopefully everyone's thinking along those lines. Right. <laughs> <laughs> A British public company took over Spratt's formula in production and began a U.S. operation in about 1890. Oh, okay. Additional companies began to develop their own recipes for biscuits and dry kibble using the current nutritional knowledge of that time period. Well, I wonder what the current nutritional knowledge was. Ooh, so I think next Patrician episode, I want to get into, like, how you make dog food. Okay, yeah. So... That sounds... Like it's going to be gross. <laughs> it could be. <laughs> we'll find out. Um, this is when you started seeing like canned dog food. Okay. Um, and this thing called the Ken L ration. Or ration. Ration. <laughs> like kennel ration, I yeah, think. Yeah, yeah. But it's like Ken L. Yep. Was introduced in 1922. Its main ingredient was horse meat, which was considered an acceptable ingredient ingredient source at that time okay Ugh. Yeah, no. our understanding of and the relationship with horses has since evolved and as they be- have become pets thank god there is no longer a market for horse meat yep thank goodness thank goodness um <laughs> charlie just like got laid out <laughs> i think you did that on purpose yeah. so here's where the farmer's dog comes in i love them because they're so spicy um <laughs> So they're pretty mad that they were feeding horse meat at all. And they point out that the meat of horse meat was carefully marked as lean red meat and it was not called horse meat. Oh. So it was only just Yeah. So it was only disclosed in much smaller letters at the bottom of the packaging. 
The canned food was stamped with a seal of government approval and had a 90% share of the market. By 1941, canned food was so successful. And that was not that long ago, 1941. No, it really wasn't. That was in our grandparents' time. Yeah. There, oh, that was World War II. Was it? Yeah. Probably. <laughs> yeah, it was. <laughs> it was, like, towards the middle. Uh, it was World War II happened during that time. Perfect. <laughs> I forget when. Okay, anyway, continue. <laughs> um, by 1941, canned food was so successful that producers were breeding horses just for dog food. No! And slaughtering 50,000 of them per year. No! Oh. That's so sad. It is really sad, especially because slaughtering even today is so unregulated and awful i can't even imagine what it was like back then no when tin and meat were rationed during world war ii and pet food was classified as a non-essential producers had to start getting creative and the combination of these imposed ration and pushback from animal lovers who were furious about the number of horses being killed every year for dog food created an opportunity to produce a new disruptive product in the pet food industry um, so the farmer's dog, obviously they're starting to point out that like this was actually a problem. Mm-hmm. And then when I read the Pet Food Institute article, they were very careful to like, they said horse really briefly, but it was just one sentence. And then they were quick to mention that like, since then things have very much changed, but the mm-hmm. farmers, I'm glad that the farmer's dog really like brought to light, like how bad it was. Yes, Definitely. Um, so then quickly, the Pet Food Institute, they start getting into an evolving understanding of pets and nutrition mm-hmm. because they, I think they want to just, like, get away from, like, all of that bad history. And the desire for prepared dog food resulted from a combination of dogs being viewed as luxury items with a need to protect their owner's investments and the increasing availability of such food, which is dog biscuits, this is where dog bread, canned food, and then marketing really blew up. The science of veterinary nutrition emerged in the late 1800s, and our understanding of animal science and nutrition has continued to evolve throughout the 20th century. The first pet food specifically formulated for the unique nutritional needs of puppies was introduced in the early 1960s. Okay, yeah, that, that makes sense. Yeah, because dogs and cats were starting to become considered like part of the family. Right, yeah, makes sense. And then here's the farmer's dog again. In 1964, the Pet Food Inst—this is when they like actually call it the Pet Food Institute. Uh oh. <laughs> the Pet Food Institute, which is a group of pet food industry lobbyists, launched a series of ad campaigns to convince consumers that commercially prepared dog food was the only option to feed. The campaigns were hugely successful in convincing the American public that their dogs' diet should be kibble-based, and were reminiscent of the early marketing strategies employed by James Spratt so many years before. Oh, okay. So I imagine that people were still, like, feeding some dogs, like, food from their house, things like that. Mm -hmm. But then there was this massive campaign to try to change everyone to just feeding, like, commercial um, brand foods. Wow. This is really amazing because you think about it today, people really only feed kibble. Yeah. You know, or canned dog food. Like, some people do the raw diet, and you're like, ooh, you're fancy. You right. You know, but that's, that's it. So like, far and few in between. Yeah. And then the thing that makes me really nervous is, like, those smaller dog food brands were starting to really make a big splash in the industry. Right. With the limited ingredient and things like that. And then they were squashed by this study that came out that said, and really scared all owners. And, like, I remember sitting in my vet's office when they are like, you cannot feed this to your dog. Like, it's going to cause heart disease. And I'm like... 
And I was so skeptical. And I was like, all right, like, what do you think I should feed? And I knew they were going to name a big brand. And yes. I'm like, are you paid by that brand? And they said that they are paid by that brand to say it. So I'm not yeah. necessarily saying, and maybe we'll find out that, like, I'm super paranoid and, like, nothing's here. But I'm just, like, so skeptical. You know, when we took Duke, when he was a puppy, we took him to multiple different vets. And each vet would bring out some kind of sample of dog food and recommend it. And it really annoyed me because I just was sure that they were paid by the brand and, and trying to get us to just get on the food because they got a kickback from that. And same, even when we got Duke, the breeder was all about like how we had to put him on this, this special puppy vitamin in order to get a health certificate for him. Mm-hmm. And I did all this research and there was no evidence to support the idea that the vitamin actually was good for his health in any way. Zero evidence, not wow. even like a study or two. Like it was like all made up. Wow. And so, and the vitamin was very expensive. And I also found in researching the vitamin that a lot of breeders were in fact getting kickbacks from this. And uh. so um, I went to this breeder and said, we are not going to do the vitamin and we don't need a health certificate. So, right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, all that stuff just makes my skin crawl. Like, yeah. what is actually going on? I'd like to just know. I don't like. I don't like um, being sold things that I shouldn't. And yeah. I started getting set. I used to completely trust them a hundred percent. Yeah. But I started getting skeptical when I was getting these major, major bills for a peanut and mm-hmm. how sick he was. And then I would go online and I'd find some holistic like um, way to get around like skin allergies. Like just put some diluted Epsom salt and coconut oil on them. Mm-hmm. And it's the same as this really expensive like oil that you're putting on your dog that you got from the vet. Yeah. But it's annoying because like I, I feel like if you so much as like post on Facebook that your dog like, has skin problems, you'll get like a thousand people all commenting, take your dog to the vet right I now, know. you know, like there's this huge outcry and the, it seems like the vet is, a, is the only answer for a lot of people, but right. it seems like, I don't know, I worry that the vet's agenda isn't always aligned to like your dog's best interest. Yeah, and I think we just all have to start being better, um, more knowledgeable consumers of like vet and just maybe not taking it at, until they get um, absolutely truthful and there is nothing to be worried about, then I just am going to stay a little worried. Dude, I have treats. Oh, you do? Okay. I've been feeding him treats. Oh, okay. That's good then. <laughs> Carry on. Uh, um, so, in the mid-1980s, the U.S. National Academy of Sciences National Research Council That's a yes, published nutritional requirements for dogs and cats. And they released updated profiles in 2006 that reflected the evolving science and understanding of animal nutrition. Um, and most commercially prepared U.S. pet food is now formulated to be complete and balanced, meaning that it provides all of a pet's nutritional requirements at the correct levels. So that makes you feel good, but that's also from the Pet Food Institute mm-hmm. and makes me just a little... It sounds legitimate, but like, right. who's to know? And it also doesn't say that all of them. It just says that most of them. So... What kind of safety requirements do they have to meet? Um, So currently, both federal and state officials inspect pet food and manufacturing facilities and test products on retail shelves for compliance with safety and nutritional requirements. So they're sending people into, like, the the factories where the dog food is made to make sure it meets whatever requirements? Is that... Yes. Okay. Yeah, that's exactly right. So thank God. So thank God there's some, like, more regulation around it. Right. Um... 
and there's a lot more as far as like legislation and things like that but I want to get into that into a a later um, episode Mm -hmm. but um, and now which should make you feel a little bit better um, the Food Safety Modernization Act it was passed into law in 2011 and it's a more recent regulatory evolution basically FSMA which is what the act is called abbreviated to represents one of the most comprehensive changes to U.S. food safety regulations in more than 70 years, and it requires the U.S. Food and Drug Administration and food producers for both humans and animals to focus on preventing foodborne illness. So I guess, okay. like, thank God that they're focused on it more. Right, right. Um, so here's a little thing from the farmer's dog again. Much of the commercial pet food landscape has become increasingly unregulated, which is also, like... What are these two articles saying? Right. And is marked by frequent recalls and health controversies. While humans have gone from eating real meat and vegetables, as cavemen did, to ingesting a highly processed diet of McDonald's, um, they name a bunch of really bad foods for you, like Twinkies. That's not... Who's eating that <laughs> stuff? I don't eat McDonald's or Twinkies. Like, do you? <laughs> no. No. So, like, that's really... That's a generalization. That's unfair. It definitely is. Anyway. Well, they're saying that we've made a, re- a return. Well, they are saying that that was kind of, like, the more common in, like, the 50s and 60s. Mm-hmm. And that recently we've made a return to real food in the past decade. Right. Which, I guess that's true. Like, me and you, like, we don't really... We know not to go to McDonald's. Right. But as we begin to educate ourselves about the key differences between highly processed food and the fresh, real stuff, as we have for us... Um, they're saying that one can't help, and this is a direct quote, one can't help but marvel at how much closer we were to feeding our dogs the right way when they were simply eating fresh, human-grade food back in the 1800s. It's true. Yep, I agree with that. So, it's kind of interesting. We got through all the history I have. Hopefully okay. it wasn't too boring. No, Hopefully I, no one I fell asleep. I found that to be really, really um, interesting. <laughs> I was trying to think of a word. You know, they say to never use the word interesting. Why? Because everybody uses it when they don't have anything else to say. Oh. Like, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> you I know? But sometimes I really don't have anything. Like, I truly, fa- it it caught my interest. <laughs> <laughs> you know? I think it's okay to say interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so, now that you've heard all this, though, like, are you still, I'm still, com- I'm more confused than ever. Like, we have two feuding articles. Both seem legitimate. I don't want to make a ton of food for my dog as of right now, but I'm also worried about what I'm feeding him. I am too. I actually started, so I added the pumpkin to Duke's diet, and I also added some fresh vegetables and beans to his diet, and so he's eating a blend right now. And um, I don't know. I'm really confused. I don't know which is better for him because it's the diet he's supposed to be on is supposed to be the food duke's on shouldn't need a supplement but i'm worried that it's still not enough because he has like the the runny poops and stuff like Mm -hmm. that and like the feeding of the pumpkin and the other stuff seems to be really helping so i don't i really don't know what's right i don't either i'm still really confused but luckily we have this forum to continue our research yep um because today our pups are our family members and we obviously care a lot about doing the right thing um, in the, like I said, in the next Puptrician episode, um, I want to dive into how pet food is made. Sounds and good. Learn a little bit more about that. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> There's so much to uncover. We have to table the discussion to future episodes, but I cannot wait to find out more. Awesome. So, email us, dogcasters at whatisdog.com. 
Awesome. And follow again. us on Instagram. <laughs> at what is Dogcast. Yeah. We'd love to hear from you. And make sure to leave us ratings and also tell your friends about this. And give your dog a hug from us. Yes. Give them a hug. And we promise we'll get to the bottom of this whole food thing. I wouldn't say change anything yet. We obviously need to learn yeah, more. Yeah, don't. Yeah, we're not authorities on this subject. We're just curious dog owners. Exactly. All right. Talk to you later. Thank you. Bye-bye.